Osiris. This podcast is in the loop, the Legion of Osiris podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com. This podcast is intended to be education and commentary. It'll discuss adult themes and may use some coarse language. You want DIY and How Studios presents The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music. Culture. Technology. And roll. And now, on with the show. First of all, we're very excited to introduce the Rock and Roll Chocolatiers, the pride of Southern Oregon, our friends at Lily Bell Farms. Lily Bell Farms makes an amazing range of sensual, scrumptious, mind-blowing chocolate goodies. Exotic caramels, luxury truffles, chocolate bars, and more. Handmade, artisanal, using organically grown, fair trade chocolate beans from around the world. They've won all kinds of national and international awards. And friends, from personal experience, I'm telling you, you gotta try Lily Bell Farms chocolate. Also, many friends and family have purchased Lily Bell Farms goodies to use for gifts, and they're always a big hit with clients, friends, or anyone you need to make feel special. You can order online or over the phone. The service is fast and friendly, and they ship everywhere. Check them out, lilybellfarms.com. That's L-I-L-L-I-E-B-E-L-L-E Farms. Or you can just click through from our website, Lily Bell Farms. Life may be sweeter for this. Hey folks, Christian Swain here. I'd like to talk a bit about our project and about you. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Project is currently four podcasts. Our main show, we think of it as a Rock and Roll 101. We will eventually do about 30 of these scripted, carefully researched audio documentaries. And we have the Rock and Roll Librarian where Shelley Sorensen and I have lively, fun discussions about books that rock. The discussions continue with Rock Talk, a weekly survey of rock and roll news with my co-host, Peter Ferrioli. And we just rolled out Deeper Digs in Rock, single-topic shows, interviews, and field trips. All we want to do now is more of it more often. And that's where you come in. Our shows will always be free. That's our promise to you. If you truly enjoy it, if you can't wait for that next episode, well, won't you please make a modest monthly donation via Patreon. Just click the Patreon link right at the top of our webpage, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and take it from there. Thank you, and keep up the rockin'. I'm Christian Swain, and I'm behind the mic at the foot of the Westminster Bridge in London, England. So right now, I'm basically kitty corner from the Big Ben Clock Tower. So if I turn 
my back on Big Ben and face out over the Thames. Just to my left is the statue of Bodica. Okay, now I'm pretty much in the same spot and looking in the same direction as Pete, Roger, Keith, and John on the cover photo of the Who Sings My Generation, the first Who album released in 1965. Hey everybody, welcome back. This is episode 11 of the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. Christian Swain here. And I'm buying the mic back home in San Francisco. That opening bit is from one of the field recordings I did during my visit to London back in August of 2015. Couple things real quick. Hey, we've got a website, rockandrollarchaeology.com, and we want you to stop by. Links, show notes, social media, and all that good stuff, that's where you find it. You've heard from our sponsors, uh, and they are awesome. So we're all good. Let's get to it right now. This is episode 11. I can't explain. London, fall of 1964. It's all happening in London, especially in the Soho neighborhood. The Beatles and the Stones might be the big kids on the block, but there is so much more going on now with the UK music scene. It's a new golden age of rock, and just as big and impactful as the Elvis to Buddy Holly era in America in the late 50s. We'll get into specifics as time allows. But the big takeaway, it's all happening, all at once. This is a really live scene. Everyone is feeding off everyone else. It's collaborative and it's competitive. In 64 and 65, you can turn any corner in the West End of London and brush up against something great, something historic. The animals, the yardbirds, the zombies, the small faces, the kinks, and the who. Uh, lots more bands you've never heard of and who were just as good. They are all active, playing residencies at local clubs, doing showcases and release parties, playing together at big Saturday night shows. We will zero in on the who and the kinks today, but we truly wish we could get to all of them. As we go through, we'll queue up some examples from the scene we especially like. And, of course, there's a playlist in the show notes. Please do some exploring on your own. This is a huge moment in rock and roll.
We'll step away from Soho for a few minutes and talk about something we've already seen and we'll see more of across the history of rock and roll. We call it anti-rock. It's a mutant strain of something social scientists call a moral panic. Marshall McLuhan, that brilliant weirdo we met in episode 9, first coined the term in his 1964 book, Understanding Media. A British sociologist named of Stanley Cohen has written at length about it and fleshed out the definition. We talked in earlier episodes about McCarthyism, anti-communist hysteria in America during the 1950s. That was a moral panic. Most moral panics aren't as serious and consequential as McCarthyism. Indeed, they often seem ridiculous, especially in hindsight. To be fair, it's not always easy to see at the time. That's the other thing about moral panics. They have this little tiny bit of legitimacy, just enough truth in them to push people's buttons. So it was with a moral panic that will kick off our story today. The Mods versus Rockers riots in southern England during the early summer of 1964. Now, this is a podcast, so you didn't see me hold up my fingers and make those uh, little ironic quote symbols when I said the word riots. So, let's just say it. As riots go, this was tame stuff. A crowded holiday weekend at a seaside resort got a little too rowdy. About a thousand, probably quite a bit less than that, accounts vary, and anyhow, a bunch of drunk, loud, and horny teenagers descended on the small resort town of Clacton on the south coast of England. There were similar incidents in Brighton and Margate as the summer went on. So, here's what really happened. Some windows got smashed, a couple of folks got beat up, one kid was stabbed, and some kids spent the weekend in jail for drunk and disorderly. Uh, sounds like a typical spring break in Florida, right? But the British press decided it was the end of Western civilization. We'll try again to be fair-minded and say just being on the fringes of a big crowd when things turn bad is frightening. Oh, we've been there and done that and <laughs> don't care to repeat it. Still, and all, it's highly subjective. A story gets told, and once people are invested in it, uh, they don't change their story to fit the facts. They change their facts to fit the story. And if it's a kinky, lurid, menacing story, if it's got sex and drugs and violence in it, well, look out. That's one way a moral panic can spread. We bring this up because these anti-rock moral panics happen a lot as we move through the rock and roll years. It's not always funny. Anti-rock has had real-world consequences. It's dishonest. It's hateful. It can end up hurting people. But still, and this is the kicker, the part we like the best, over and over, these anti-rock campaigns always seem to backfire. Always. It's fucking great. It's gloriously stupid. As the summer of 1964 began, the BBC and Fleet Street, the British media establishment, decided to sell their viewers on the story of the youth menace. There's these two warring tribes of teenage hoodlums, and you better watch out, good citizen, you might get caught in the crossfire. 
freaking out the squares. We got some of that old school rocker rebellion in us. We love that stuff. But the mods are just too irresistibly cool, and this is something new, so we're going to stick with them today. Mods were small, strange creatures, very neat and delicate, and they rode scooters, chewed gum, and swallowed pills by the hundredweight. It was fierce, dedicated stuff. You'd see them mooching around in big tribes, their girls trailing forgotten behind them, and they'd dance all by themselves, sunk deep in narcissistic dreams. Mod was hard work, intense, truly obsessive, and that's the kind of atmosphere that breeds good pop. That's a quote from the very first and still one of the best rock writers, Nick Cohn. We love Nick. He basically invented rock and roll commentary, which means, in large part, he invented what we're doing right here. Nick wrote about rock with strong prose and lots of attitude. It still reads sharp and true 50 years later. And he was right in the thick of it, a young man on the scene in mid-60s London. Along the way, Nick and Pete Townsend became friends, and Nick became an unofficial advisor to Pete and The Who. (laughs) 
Well, no one told me about her, the way she lied. Well, no one told me about her, how many people cried. More about the moths, as Nick wrote. It was intense, obsessive. It took over your teenage life. Mod teams had a hierarchy. Uh, the face, Ace Face, he was the ringleader, the sharpest dressed peacock. The face had a small cadre of loyal lieutenants. They were called the numbers. The kids in the crowd were the tickets. There were also subgroups, the scooter boys with their army parkas, the hard mods who dressed sharp too, but more aggressively working class denim and boots. The mods had been around for a while as a small subculture in London. The first book of the mod canon, the foundational text, is the Colin McInnes' novel Absolute Beginners, published in 1959. It was central to the mod ethos to ignore the popular music of the moment. In the early days, the Absolute Beginners era mods were lovers of modern jazz. Later, they gravitated towards American soul and R&B records. this before. In the early and mid-60s, the best thing in American music was R&B, Motown, and soul. At that time in Britain, there was no escaping the Beatles and their Mersey Beat imitators, but the mainstream, the top of the pops, uh, just didn't engage the mods. So, even as the Beatles became leading lights of London society, and down at the street level, the kids had already moved on. If you were too cool for all the Beatlemania hype, well, that meant you took a ride to Soulville, and Maud, with its aspirational embrace of the new, was all about breaking down barriers of class and race and taste. The DJs would spin James Brown, Motown, Stax, and Atlantic R&B, which was awesome, but the house bands would play weak, watered-down imitations of the same. So the scene had a great look and big ideas, attitude and energy, but it didn't have its own voice, a signature sound. Not yet. Davis anyway. Ray and Dave would probably scoff at the idea or possibly even punch you out for suggesting it, but the original mod voice in rock music, we assert, was the Kinks. 
Ray and Dave and their old school chum Peter Quave were not pretty boys or sharp dressers on scooters. They were scruffy, scrappy West Enders. Their drummer, Mick Avery, was a snappy dresser who self-identified as a mod, but that was about as far as it went. But they were on the scene, playing the clubs and the raves, and the mod kids dug the kinks. The kinks may not have copped the mod look, but right away, they instinctively understood the attitude. Johnny B. Good, the succinct definition of rock and roll circa late 1950s. Five years later, the Kinks came up with their own succinct definition of rock and roll. Even the most casual rock fan has that guitar riff burned into their DNA. Some things we'll see down the line, metal, punk, grunge, they owe a lot to the Kinks in general and to this song in particular. In later years, Dave Davis, who came up with that riff, Dave called it a love song for street kids. Sounds about right. There is something kind of weird and really cool here, and to our thinking, it's part of what defines the kinks. This garage rock celebration of sexual desire has more than a little ironic detachment. There's this world-weary lack of affect. The singer, Ray Davis, seemed kind of checked out, moody. It's a little punk rock attitude, a full decade before punk rock came along. Big beat, crunchy guitars, some snotty nonconformist attitude. It ends up being pretty good dance music for a mid-60s London mod. Dance with yourself, after all. You are the prettiest one in the whole club, checked out and detached alone in the crowd, lost in a narcissistic fog of dextrine and self-regard. I'm not content to be with you in the daytime. Girl, I want to be with you all of the time. Another love song for street kids, another hit single. Said it before, and we'll say it again, these guys really deserve more props. Along with the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and the Who, the Kinks belong in the front rank of the best and most influential British rock bands from the mid-60s. What broke the Kinks out was doing their own songs, originals written by Ray Davies. At first, they did covers and some shitty songs written by their producer, an American douchebag by the name of Shell Talmy. Talmy also produced some early records by The Who till they wised up and dumped his ass. There is a reason the Kinks got left behind relative to the other three groups we named. That story also, as we shall see, is something of a cautionary tale. More about that in a bit.
nobody till I met you. But you keep me waiting all of the time. What can I do? Tired of Waiting is one of our favorites by the Kinks. Barely out of his teens, Ray Davies is already a versatile songwriter. He comes up with this lovely, lonely, and wistful change of pace, a departure from the brash, snotty grunge of the first two hit singles. We really like this take from Nick Cohn about Ray's songwriting. He writes about nothing much, streets and houses and pubs, days at the seaside, little bits of love, drabness on things that don't change, stuff like that. He's an open romantic, but there's always a slyness in it, some self-mockery. He's depressive, exhausting, but he's also funny. Myself, I like him immensely. Tired of Waiting was the Kinks' third hit single in six months. It pushed the Beatles out of the number one spot on the UK chart, and it charted top ten in America, too. So, it's early 65, and the Kinks are on their way. The next step, do what the Beatles, the Stones, and the Annals had already done. Go to America and clean up. Make some real money. Uh, didn't exactly work out that way. For your love. For your love. For your love. I'd give you everything and more, and that's for sure. For your love. I'd bring you diamond rings and things right to your door. For your love. To thrill you with delight. Give you diamonds bright Double days that will excite Make you dream of me at night We'll come back to the Kinks and their American Waterloo And for now, let's stay in Soho And talk some more about the mod scene The thing we really like the most about the mods While it may have put up a cynical, detached front At its core, it was aspirational, even optimistic It was about more than just appearance Clean living under very difficult circumstances, in the words of Peter Meaden, who managed the Who for a spell. Mod is ambition made flesh and cloth. Um, it is arguably the closest the British have come to articulating their own version of the American dream. And the class-bound cities and suburbs of the mid-20th century, far beyond the celebrity world of swing in London, um, the style was adopted by ambitious men and women who sensed their importance of being smart mentally and sartorially in order to make the most of their opportunities. That's from a 2013 piece by Richard Wade in the London Daily Telegraph. Wade continues. Mod has formed the DNA of British youth culture for more than 60 years, uh, influencing cults from glam rock to Britpop and even rave. And it has enabled successive youngsters to forge their own identity, while creating a family of interrelated mod styles accessed by all ages. Richard Wade has written a lot over the years about mod culture. He is a bit out of breath here, but he's not wrong. The mod movement was a big one, really influential. It sought to bust through barriers of culture and class and race, and it did exactly that. It actually faded pretty quickly from its peak in 1965, but it left a big mark. Working-class British youth who aspired to more so they would dress and act the part. This was pretty revolutionary all by itself. Italian shoes, razor-sharp creases, and tricked-out shiny scooters 
clever, dedicated, working-class kids using fashion as a form of self-expression, a way to set yourself apart. But at the same time, you were part of a scene, part of something bigger. You belonged. Every teen everywhere feels that push and that pull, the need to belong versus the desire to express your own individuality. A mod kid could get both of those needs met. It was an aesthetic, a way of thinking about art and performance, one that demanded a forward-looking worldview, a love for the modern. These ideas complemented the art school theories whizzing around Pete Townsend's head, wrote Mark Blake in his 2014 bio, The Who, Pretend You're in a War. One of those art school theories whizzing around Pete's head, the idea of autodestructive art, the notion that each performance is a one-off, a unique event, a happening never to be repeated. So to ensure it happens just once and never again, you destroy the instruments you use to create it, smash things up in the name of art. Because mod, as Pete conceived it, is restless, continually changing. It has to destroy and reinvent itself. Uh, Pete loved that idea, and so do we. What could be better? You get to go on stage, smash shit up, work out some of your anger issues, and the chaos that ensues is art. Lots of potential for vandalistic fun. But that was just one of Pete Townsend's many ideas. What we especially like about The Who, right from the start, Pete was writing and Roger Daltrey was singing right to their fans. Pete has said as much. He's not trying to write songs about himself. He's trying to write songs about you. He coined a term for it, power pop. And it's a good summary of the mod aesthetic. The music was catchy and hooky, but underneath the gloss, the songs were full of tough commentary and sarcasm and more than a little anger. The songs were about you, mod kid, out in the middle, dancing alone, sunglasses on, bowler hat, shiny shoes, skinny tie and all. You might feel put down, misunderstood. You might be working all week at a shit job for shit pay. Things, they do look awful cold. Become the weekend, you can go find your tribe. You can aspire to be more. You can go anywhere you want. Get away to where the kids are all right. I don't mind the guys dancing with my girl. Right. 
kid, Pete Townsend was not all right. He went through a short but horrible period of neglect and abuse as a child. In his autobiography, Who I Am, Pete is reticent about the details and who can blame him. That's the kind of thing one does privately with a therapist. What we do know, at the age of five, his parents parked young Pete in a two-bedroom apartment with his maternal grandmother, Grandma Denny. Denny was, it's pretty clear from our reading, a dangerous nutcase. Pete's mom and dad were going through a rough patch in their marriage. They had a few of those, and they didn't need a precocious kid underfoot. They rationalized it like this. Caring for Pete might anchor Grandma Denny, settle her down. Instead, she tormented the boy and offered him up to others for abuse. It was a grotesque, awful decision by his parents to leave him in her care, and young Pete Townsend paid the price. Put it this way, as a young man, Pete had some serious unresolved shit he needed to work out. It wasn't just Pete. The other guys, well, they had some issues too. The Who in concert often resembled the group therapy session gone horribly wrong. There was another magic, which was that John Emerson is a fucking genius. A fucking genius on the bass guitar. That's Pete driving the magic bus and talking about John Entwistle. It's skipping ahead a little, but we had to play a cut from the best live album ever made, The Who, Live at Leeds, released in 1970. The quote is from the superb 2015 documentary, Lambert and Stamp. When they met, Pete was 11, one grade behind John at the Acton County Grammar School in West London. They shared an interest in music, and there was immediate chemistry. They would go on to play together all the way up until John's death in 2002. John was raised mostly by his mom, a piano teacher, and starting at age 7, John received formal musical training. He could also play guitar and piano, brass, and he sang strong harmonies. At the live shows, John planted himself stage left, stolid and stoic in his pointy-toed boots. He was the wall of which the other three would bounce. On stage and in studio, John Entwistle was the first virtuoso of the bass guitar, a true original. The boys in The Who called him Ox, a tribute to his steadiness, or Thunder Fingers, which sums up his bass playing about as well as anything possibly could. A lot of folks, fans, critics, fellow musicians, call him the best rock bassist ever, and we think they have a damn good case. Nobody was playing the bass guitar like that in 1965, that's for certain. The Who's early catalog has been remastered digitally in recent years, and we listened to these new cleaned-up versions. The thing that jumped out at us right away was, holy shit, listen to Entwistle. We recommend you go and do likewise and experience the special genius of Thunderfingers, John Entwistle.
bluesy, complex rhythms of the legendary jazz drummer Gene Krupa. At first, John Entwistle, that consummate musician, was frustrated with Keith's erratic stream of consciousness drumming, but he also understood that Keith was a unique wildcard element in the Who's sound, so John adapted. By the time their first single, I Can't Explain, dropped in early 1965, the Who's backline was a chaotic and potent musical force, more than a match for Pete's power chords and howling feedback. They also meshed on a social level. John had a dark sense of humor, and much more than the other two, he was willing to tolerate Keith's antics. They became buddies on the road, getting into all kinds of legendary trouble together. Keith was determined to have a great birthday party, egged on by the Holiday Inn banner outside the hotel. Happy 21st, Keith Moan. He was actually only 20. <laughs> By the time I reached the party room, the cake was all over the floor, the walls and Keith's face. In the swimming pool, a Lincoln Continental balanced precariously, half in and half out. Keith then managed to knock out his own teeth and it was only because he was sequestered at the dentist that he wasn't arrested. The Who were banned from Holiday Inns for life. <laughs> the infamous Continental in the Swimming Pool incident occurred in August of 1967 in Rolling Meadows, Illinois. So Keith, born in 1946, really was 21 that day. Note that Keith's bandmate, Pete Townsend, writing in his autobiography some 50 years later, still thought Keith was a year younger than he really was. Substitute lies for facts. smacking Keith around one too many times. Roger was a little guy, maybe five foot six, but he had a prize fighter's build and he was as tough as they come. All through that year, as the Who toured and recorded, Pete asserted himself more and more as the main creative force in the band. Roger bristled at that, and when Roger Daltrey got annoyed, he let you know it by cracking you five dealing at a punch or a sharp, humiliating slap to the face. The other three guys got fed up and asked their new managers, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp, to look for a new singer, a substitute. We'll come back to The Who, to Roger and to Lambert and Stamp. But before we leave 1965, let's check in on the Kinks and talk about their ill-fated American tour. <laughs> Wondering if I'd done wrong Release depression 
left the Kinks, it was early 1965, and their third single had just hit number one. From August 64 to June of 65, the boys played over 150 live shows on five continents, made numerous TV appearances, and cranked out singles and albums as they went. Like the Beatles a year earlier, they were working their asses off and things were beginning to pop for them. As a live attraction, they were on the same level as the Rolling Stones, but unlike the Stones, who were still primarily a cover band, the Kinks were charting on both sides of the Atlantic with fresh, punchy originals penned by Ray Davies. The Who were only beginning to make some noise. Their first single, I Can't Explain, deliberately mimicked the Kinks. Pete Townsend admitted as much in his book. In May of 1965, eight of the top ten slots on the American pop charts were held by British bands. Were it not for Barry Gordy's hit factory at Motown Records, the British dominance would have been absolute. So, at the peak moment of the British invasion, the Kinks were right there, right in the thick of it. They had three top tens already in America. Their main competition for pop chart supremacy was the powerhouse team of John Lennon and Paul McCartney. Uh, this is some big-time heady stuff rock dreams made manifest. Unfortunately, the Kinks were nowhere near ready for it. June 17, 1965, the Kinks landed at JFK, cleared customs, and were whisked past the crowd into the limo and taken quickly to the hotel. They got to their rooms just fine, and that was about the last thing that went right for the Kinks in America. Baby, I feel good From the moment I rise Feel good from morning To the end of the day To the end of the day Yeah, you and me We live this life When we get up To the refer you to the show notes again. There's a couple of Kinks bios there for you. We especially like Nick Hasted's You Really Got Me. You can get all the gory details about the first American tour. In summary, it just all went to shit. Bounced checks, blown gigs, bad sound systems, negative press, whatever could go wrong did go wrong. Under the strain, the guys fell apart and turned on each other. By the time they skulked back to London in August, the Kinks were blackballed by the American Federation of Musicians. Any venue that booked the Kinks risked boycott and strikes. Now, the union beef could have been smoothed over with some apologies and a few envelopes stuffed with cash, but there was more. All four of the guys were put on the no-entry list by the U.S. State Department. For four years, they couldn't even get a tourist visa, let alone a work permit. Here's where we get to the cautionary tale part of our story. We'll start by asserting something. To be a great rock and roll band, you must have a great manager. You might make it to the top without one, but you won't stay there. The Beatles had Brian Epstein looking out for them. Bob Dylan had Albert Grossman. The Rolling Stones had Andrew Luke Oldman. And, as we'll see shortly, The Who got things going when Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp took them on. Cause he gets up in the morning And he goes to work at night 
And he comes back home at 5.30 Gets the same train every time Cause his world is built on punctuality It never fails And he's all so good And he's all so fine And he's all so healthy In his body and his mind He's a well-respected man about town had a smarmy asshole named Shel Talmy as their agent and producer. And for a road manager, they had an even bigger asshole named Larry Page. Now, the Kinks did themselves no favors in America. They were surly and snotty to the press, to promoters, and to the staff at the venues they played. They even got shitty with some of their fans. Not good. But we're going to be a lot tougher on the managers than on the band for a simple reason. The Kinks were just kids, barely out of their teens. They needed professional guidance, badly, and they didn't get it. They paid for that service, paid dearly. The management contracts they signed with Tommy and Page were the music business version of sharecropping. Tommy and Page took their money, uh, but they didn't do the job. The Rolling Stones had many of the same problems on their first U.S. tour, but Lou Goldman did what a manager does. He schmoozed and hustled, greased some palms, and made sure the Stones paid a reverential and well-publicized visit to Chess Records in Chicago. And, uh, oh yeah, during that recording session at Chess, Keith Richards recorded a scratch guitar track using a fuzz box. He intended it as a guide track for the horn section. It was a new tune he'd written with Mick Jagger. It wasn't going to be the final version. summer of 1965, did you really think we were going to leave without playing Satisfaction? More Rolling Stones in later episodes, my friends. We promise you this. But right now, we'll go back to the kinks and make one final comment. So, as we've seen, instead of successfully invading America, the kinks hastily retreated to England. And Ray Davis retreated into himself just 21 years old, Ray was already a family man. In late 64, in a traditional Lithuanian ceremony, he married Raza Dispetris, small and shy, educated in a convent, the daughter of two war refugees. Ray and Raza's first daughter, Luisa, was born right before the U.S. tour. The other three guys went right back to living the rock and roll life, hitting the London scene, popping pills and shagging groupies. But Ray got a little place in the leafy West End neighborhood of Fortis Green, just a few blocks from where he grew up in Muswell Hill. He settled into family life.
Davis did what artists do. He used what was available to him, and he created something with it. America receded. Ray Davis started writing about the things around him. The Waterloo train station, the River Thames, the people he observed lazing on a Sunday afternoon. Mordant, witty observations, sly little meditations on things. He wrote a lot of those. Really quite lovely and quintessentially English. The last cut is Waterloo Sunset from 1967, and it's a great example. We also recommend their brilliant and underrated 1968 album, The Village Green Preservation Society. Ourselves, we like it immensely. Fall of 1965, Roger Daltrey was fed up with the pill-popping. Roger believed, with good reason, the Who's excessive drug-taking was affecting the music. In the dressing room after a disastrous show in Denmark, Roger angrily berated his bandmates and flushed Keith's pills down the toilet. Keith whacked Roger on the head with a tambourine. Roger turned on Keith and beat him into unconsciousness. Outraged, Pete and John told Roger to fuck off and never come back. Roger was out, but they had a recording date, so he agreed to go into the studio one last time. That session yielded the title cut and most of the other material for The Who's first album, My Generation. The Who were fractious and fractured, but they were filling halls and selling records, so Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp went to work mending fences. The managers facilitated a meeting where the other three made Roger vow to lay off his bandmates. No more violence. Amazingly, Roger, who never backed down from anything, agreed to the terms, and he kept his promise. with Pete and Roger vying with each other for the votes of the other two. 1966 was also when Lambert and Stamp, with the full support of the band, got rid of Shel Talmy. The strategy was simple, but drastic. The Who recorded and released their next song, Substitute, on another label, 
and accepted the inevitable lawsuit as a cost of doing business. Shell Ptolemy walked away with 5% of the Who's net earnings for the next five years. That cut ended up being worth millions of dollars. It was worth it. The Who were out from under Ptolemy. The Who were now solely managed and produced by Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. These two believed in Pete's talents and were willing to nurture it. They set him up with a home studio and they pushed him to think big, to try things like working in a longer format. The title cut of the second Who album, a quick one, was a nine-minute masterpiece, a mini rock opera in several movements. Pete was growing as composer and learning fast. Every show, it was drama, jealousy, power struggles, screaming arguments, but somehow it was working for them. The live shows were fiery, angry, unpredictable as hell, unbelievably loud, and absolutely compelling. Right around then, late 1966, Pete Townsend made a frenemy. There was a new kid in town. Like Pete... He was fiery, unpredictable, like Pete, he played insanely loud. And what's more, he was copying Pete's idea of autodestructive art with a guitar and doing it better. So when he would go see Jimi Hendrix playing the London clubs in late 66, Pete was at war with himself. He was friends with Jimi, really liked him, and he was in complete awe of his talent. And yet, at the same time, he hated Jimmy's guts. He burned with envy. Jimmy played with a fluid, fast virtuosity that Pete knew he could never match. And he had latched on to Pete's big performance idea and taken it further. In his autobiography, Pete plays the wise elder. He's diplomatic and gracious. But Roger Daltrey, Nick Cohn, and others around him at the time heard plenty of gripes from Pete about Jimi Hendrix. Then, as if to rub his nose in it, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp signed the Jimi Hendrix Experience to their new independent label, Track Records. The first single by the Experience, Hey Joe, was released at the end of 1966. In late January, the Experience opened for The Who at the Saville Theatre in London. Mark Blake picks up the story. The Who watched as the Hendrix trio powered through a 45-minute set that included a loose and thunderous version of the Trogs' hit single, Wild Thing. Towards the end of the show, Hendrix thrust his Fender Stratocaster against his Marshall amp. The guitar howled, the audience roared. John Lennon, Paul McCartney and Cream witnessed it all from the VIP seats. Hendrix took all my ideas and flung them back at me with knobs on said Townsend. 
1967 began, Pete Townsend felt the ground shifting under his feet. Mod clubs were closing down all over London. Psychedelia was taking over. Cream and Hendrix were the talk of the town. The Who defined themselves in terms of their mod audience. Now the mod movement had passed. As Pete imagined it, and for once Roger fully agreed with him, it was time to change things up, find a new audience, and a new direction for The Who. Time to get out of London and head over to America. So the boys went over to New York. Finally, in the spring of 1967, it was a triumph. I know you can see me, now here's a surprise. I know that you have, cause there's magic in my eyes. I can see for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. Here's Pete recalling the two weeks the Who spent in New York co-headlining with Cream at the RKO 58th Street Theater. While I labored backstage with soldering iron and glue, rebuilding smashed Fender Stratocasters, the Who's New York fan base was being built from human kindness and affection never equaled anywhere else on Earth. If I set up a mattress on Fifth Avenue today, I could live for the rest of my life on the beneficence and loyalty of our New York fans. I, I still know at least 20 of those RKO kids by name. Back in London, there was news from Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. In about six weeks, they would head back to America, out to California, because the Who agreed to play for free. Lambert and Stamp got them a featured spot at the Monterey Pop Festival. <laughs>
And that is right where we will pick it up in our next episode with the Jimi Hendrix Experience, the Monterey Pop Festival. I'm Christian Swain, and this is the Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast. Thank you, friends, and please come on back for episode 12. the wrongs of social injustice? Oxfam America works with people in more than 90 countries to save lives, develop long-term solutions to poverty, and campaign for social change. And we do it with the help of our friends in the music world. The Beatles were Oxfam supporters back in the day. So were the Stones. And through the years, musicians and music fans have helped Oxfam push hard to work for a just world without poverty. Folks like Radiohead, Coldplay, Pearl Jam, DJ Shadow, and many, many more have encouraged their fans to join the effort. You can too. Go to OxfamAmerica.org to learn how you can help. The Rock and Roll Archaeology Podcast is produced and hosted by Christian Swain. Written by Richard Evans and Christian Swain. All quotes performed by actors unless noted. Playlists can be found at iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify. Purchase these great and important tracks. All songs, clips, and references can be found on our show notes. Please visit rnrap.com for more information. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com. Code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.